Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Amen, amen, amen. Well, welcome. Good morning, everyone here. Uh, just want a special thanks to those of you who are joining us at home or downstairs in Simpson Hall and my friends here in the room with me in the worship center. I'm so glad to see your wonderful eyes. It's great to see you guys. Um, a big thank you to my darling wife, Dominique, for reading today's scripture. That is a mouthful because today we are diving into a one-day study of the entire book of Jude. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles today, you can find Jude at the end of your Bible. It's second last to the book of Revelation. And I find that this book is often quoted but rarely taught. And that's a grave uh, error because I think there's so much that it has to offer for the church today. And even though this letter is just only a short 25 verses, it is rich, it is complex. And it is powerful. And so, you know, there's this pastor, Paul David Tripp, who calls the book of Jude a strong drink. And I, I tend to agree. It's, it's a hard pill to swallow. And it is delivered by Jude as a wake-up call with love. And so, like a shot of adrenaline to the very heart of the church, um, we have the letter of Jude. And so today, because of the sake of time, we're not going to get bogged down into the, all the juicy details we can find in the letter, but instead we're going to focus on the main idea of Jude's message. And so we're going to drive towards the application for our lives as believers. And see, that's the benefit of preaching an entire book in one go. So we're going to leverage that today. Uh, so since we're not going to stop and tour every fascinating part of Jude's letter, if you want to go deeper and if you want to study further, I know that some of you will. I've provided you with extra study materials at thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes. You'll also find digital sermon notes for today there. And kids, if you check out your praise pack, you'll find a little piece of paper that will help you uh, draw a picture of me for one which is always fun. And then number two, uh, rhyme words with Jude, such as dude, and so on. Uh, so we're going to have fun today. And I've provided these extra study materials for you so you can continue your study in Jude, because uh, I know you'll enjoy all that Jude has to offer. So we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started, all right? Um, let me start today by asking you just a simple question. Do you know how to contend for the faith. These are contentious times. You know, the longer, I don't know about you, but the longer I follow Christ, the more I realize how much I don't know. And it makes me think of this song by Joni Mitchell because it always gets me thinking about what I don't know. And in this song, Joni Mitchell, um, it's this popular song, Both Sides Now, she writes this. She writes, I've looked at life from both sides now from up and down, and still somehow. It's life's illusions that I recall, and I don't, really don't know life at all. And so for me, Joni really captures the idea sometimes we get things, we get them wrong. And I think maybe sometimes how we contend for the faith is wrong. 
Maybe we need to change our perspective. Maybe we need to shatter the illusions we have about how we go about it. So how should we contend for the faith? And that's the question we're going to answer today. But first, let me tell you everything you need to know about Jude. First of all, Jude was a humble servant. And in the typical fashion of most first century letters, Jude opens up by a greeting and identifies himself in that greeting. But listen, this greeting is far from the standard, standard first century greeting and practice, and it reveals a lot about who Jude is. The first word he uses to describe himself is dolos, which literally means slave. He is a slave for Christ. Jude identifies himself as a slave belonging to Christ and devoted to his service. And, and while this might be nice and all, why is that so significant here in this letter? Well, I think it's because Jude describes himself in a second way. He describes himself as the brother of James. And this is the most interesting part because if we explore the scriptures, we find that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So what does this mean? This means that Jude is also a half-brother of Jesus Christ, his Lord. And so why does Jude not identify himself that way? Hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. And so commentators don't know exactly why Jude would do this, but based on his letter, we can hazard a really good question, or a good guess, it, that is. And so you can probably imagine there's a really good story there. I think Jude and his brothers didn't always think that much of their half-brother Jesus. They probably thought he was like a little bit crazy because of how he described himself and what he said about who his father was. And that's until Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Everything changed then. And after that, many of Jesus' brothers, their half-brothers, became his followers. And so Jude, who became a missionary, no longer identifies with his, Jesus as his brother. But why is that? And I think that's because he cannot deny Jesus as Lord. And since he believed Jude was humbled and he called his brother Jesus my Lord. But you might be asking, okay, so then what gives him credibility to write to us today as believers? And it could be that this humility we find in his greeting, it could be that reason. It could be that he's leaning on the reputation of his brother James, who's this prominent faith leader in the Jerusalem church. But I think it's that he surrenders to Jesus, his brother, as Lord that gives him authority, but more so authority to call others to confess Jesus as Lord. See, I believe Jude's humility is so critical to his message here in the letter of Jude. It completely changes the tone of this letter. Without the humility of Jude, this letter could be a witch hunt or a call to arms. Without the humility of Jude, we have no example to which he is calling us to. But with the humility of Jude, we have a powerful pastoral exhortation. And so you might be asking, well, now he's got that authority, we've, we've got that down. Who is he writing to? Well, simply, he just wrote to true believers. He's appealing to them. He's warning other believers of false teachers who deny Jesus as Lord. And so he doesn't warn these believers because their salvation is hanging in the balance or because they need to earn the love of God. He reassures them. He says, you are called, beloved by the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. 
And he prays a blessing upon them. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Why? Well, because they will need that, that blessing, those blessings for what Jude is going to tell them to do about false teachers. See, Jude reveals the purpose of his letter in verse 3. He says, contend for the faith. He writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's just break this down a little bit. When he says the faith, he is referring to the collection of the apostles' teachings. This teaching was delivered to the believers, how? Once for all, meaning that it was established and complete. Nothing could be added or omitted or changed. And if you were to twist or abandon the faith, the collection of the apostles' teachings, it was to commit something that was commonly called apostasy. Apostasy just really means to fall away or depart from the faith. And so why does faith, this collection of the apostles' teachings, the thing that we read every day in the Bible, the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures, why does it need to be contended for? Well, Jude is saying that we need to preserve it from falsehood. He warns that the churches are at risk of being infiltrated by false teachers who twist the faith. He writes, certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, a godly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so these certain people that Jude is talking about are these false teachers who departed from the teachings of the apostles. They, they were defiling God's grace and twisting it into this permission, this license to commit sin. And they claim that, you know, sin no longer has dominion over us. The law of God no longer indicts us. But instead, they lived as they pleased under the false banner of grace. And so they ignored the commands of Jesus and denied him lordship over their lives. And they were headed for destruction. See, for us, spotting false teachers is so important because wherever you find false teaching— Close behind, you'll find a trail of those who are falling away from the faith. For example, you know, it seems that every time you guys turn around, or when I turn around, some Christian celebrity is renouncing their faith. You know, in the late summer of 2019, there's this celebrity pastor, Joshua Harris, who logged into his Instagram account and confessed that he no longer calls himself a Christian. And so you might remember his best-selling book from the 90s called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And so that what made him so popular. But he went and logged into his Instagram account, and he wrote this on social media. He said, By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And so when things like this happen, we, we wonder what it means. How did this happen? Did, did Harris do something scandalous? You know, or was everything he taught wrong? What does this mean now for me? While Harris's approach on relationships and courtship and dating was unique to the rest of the world, purity actually remains a really pivotal, irrevocable, Christ-like value. 
So what does this mean? You know, if we're honest, we'd rather not get mixed up in the controversy of people and celebrity pastors and all the things that they're saying right now and falling away from the faith and all these proclamations. But people are walking away from the faith, and we need to know why. What made Harris renounce his faith in Christ and his beliefs about relationships and his book? And recently I observed this about Harris and his situation. There was all these newlyweds and divorcees who blamed Harris for their discontent and for their failures. People got to him. The majority were writing him off based on his beliefs. And so like Harris, many believers are bombarded by false doctrines of the secular pop culture. And, but it's not just celebrities that are falling away from the faith. You know, these distorted values, these twisted ideas and falsehoods, they can slip into the church of Christ. And so it affects our dear friends and our families. Someone you know, you could probably think of them right now. And so maybe you're here or you're at home and your faith is actually slipping through your fingers as I speak to you now. How does this happen? You know, people are falling away from the faith in our faith communities. And so is it possible, this is a scary thought, is it possible that the church we have now is the fallen church of tomorrow? I hope not. And I think it won't happen if we know how to contend for the faith. Uh, there's this American writer, David French, who explains this the best. He says, They're retreating from faith not because they're ignorant of the key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual, theological depth, but rather because of the adversity of adherence to increasingly countercultural doctrine grows too great. Put another way, and more simply, the failure of, church, of the church isn't so much of catechesis or as teaching, but of fortification of building the pure moral courage to, and resolve to live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. And so this is why Jude encourages us to grapple for to the faith in face in today's challenges. So let's talk about the nature of contending. Because this is the trickiest part, because we misunderstand what contending means. You know, there is this Greek word, the word is apagonestatai, which means to struggle or to agonize. You know, like it's really intense. And while these words really help us find out how serious and how engaging contending is, it causes a problem. The first problem is that words like agonize or agony make it seem like contending for the faith. It's just this unbearable task, right? The second problem is that to the modern mind, we can be too quick to equate the idea of contending with this aggressive assault upon our opponents. And because of these challenges in our thinking, we must be careful. We cannot confuse contending with contention because these are contentious times. To be contentious is to be argumentative and always spoiling for a fight, or looking for a fight. In comparison, to contend means to assert a fixed position on a matter. And so if we're not careful, we can become contentious, and we can do a good thing the wrong way. So instead, contending for the faith is to face falsehood and grapple with it. 
in a figurative sense, contending for the faith is best compared to wrestling. And I know that there's some wrestlers here in the room, and yeah, up there on the balcony, I knew this was for you. Uh, and you know that wrestling is strategic. It's ongoing. It requires perseverance. It engages the whole person, the whole body. It requires training and growth, and it's exhausting. I mean, just getting all sweaty and, and just fighting it out with someone. You know, in the second century, there's this Greek instruction manual on wrestling, and it describes wrestling this way. It says, you stand up to his side, you attack him with your foot, and you fight it out. You, you throw him, you stand up and turn around, you fight it out, you throw him, you sweep and knock his foot out, stand to the side of your opponent and with your right arm, you take him and you give him a headlock, and it looks like a noogie, and you fight it out, right? That's, that's kind of the picture we have for wrestling. But the funny thing about wrestling is that the goal is for your opponent to yield, to say uncle, right? For lack of a better term. But it's not to destroy each other utterly. It's not intended to go that far. And there is this point of mercy. Mercy! Otherwise, it's like when I watch my kids beat on each other and one of them just takes it entirely too far, right? Gotta be careful because if we do too little... We're not wrestling for the faith, but if we do too much, there is no mercy. But Jude tells us we need to wrestle for our faith, if we can use that better word than contending, to wrestle. Because if we don't get a grip on our faith, it can slip through our fingers. And so Jude encourages us to size up our opponents of the faith, face them, and resist their advances. And so in the main body of Jude's message here, he shows us why it's so important to wrestle for our faith. Uh, so before we go there, though, let's step aside and let's map out our way forward in the text here. And so I want to take a moment to point out two important factors about today's study. Number one, first in the main body of Jude's letter, he commits double sermon inception. And so what I mean by that is that he's built two messages within a message. And so this section is what the uh, ancient Judaic authorities would call the Midrash which means an extensive study and textual interpretation. Like you saw it as Dominique read the scripture today in verses 5 through 19. There's just a massive amount of information there. And we could camp out with the truth and illustrations found there for weeks. And so I'm going to encourage you to do that and continue your study at home. <laughs> uh, but again, I'm going to summarize what each segment in the Midrash contributes to Jude's main message for the sake of time. The second thing I need you to know is that you'll notice that Jude has some foreign references from outside the biblical canon in the main body of the text. Jude quotes these stories and these prophecies from uh, the Testament of Moses and First Enoch, and they belong to the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. And in short, Jude uses these sources as secondary supportive texts to help those who are listening, these Messianic Jews, and it would be helpful to them. In the same way that I might quote, you know, Tim Keller or N.T. Wright as a helpful resource to you guys, whether you're here in the room or at a home or downstairs. So if we keep these two things in our, the forefront of our minds, let's answer the question, how does Jude show us why wrestling for our faith is so important. Well, he gives us three reasons. First, Jude shows us in verses 5 to 7 that contenders remember the cost of unbelief. See, Jude reminds his readers that three communities were crushed by unbelief. He writes, now I want to remind you 
What is he reminding them of? He's reminding them that Israel, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, all suffered losses to unbelief. First, the Lord destroyed those unbelieving people in Israel after delivering them from Egypt. And second of all, the fallen angels didn't submit to God's authority, and they were cast into darkness until judgment day. Third, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sin and were destroyed by fire. And all of these unbelieving people, all of them face punishment on judgment day. And so why is it so important for us to remember these lost people, these lost communities from the past? See, Jude is showing that if we don't remember the past, we risk the cost of unbelief in the future. So in the same way for us today as believers, if we do not continue to remember the redeeming work of Christ that is behind us, we might lose more people to the destruction that is ahead. And so, you know, often here at Crosspoint, we intentionally commemorate God's mighty deeds, his accomplished work, and his promises for the future that are our hope. We practice communion baptism, all these things to remember the lost and celebrate those who have been found. Most of all, contenders for the faith remember. They just remember the cost of unbelief. It's too costly to lose people. The second reason wrestling for a faith is essential is found in Jude verses 8 to 13. Jude shows us that contenders recognize falsehood. Here, Jude describes these false teachers in a bold and fantastical way. He calls some of them unreasoning animals. Wow. I don't suggest saying that, guys. Um, people who mock what they do not understand. They rely on prophetic messages, engage in sin, reject authority, and disrespect supernatural beings. And so Jude compares them to three uh, biblical characters, Cain and Balaam, and um, as well as the, the uh, Korah and the 200. You know, in the first instance, they resemble the violence of Cain who kills his brother in a violent, violent jealous rage. Second, they are like Balaam who tempts the people of Israel for personal gain. Third, because of their pride, they are like Korah who defies God, God's authority and is destroyed with the 200. See, Jude is telling us that falsehood could be easily spotted when we pay attention. And so he provides these excellent illustrations to help us familiarize ourselves with falsehood. He says, false teachers are like hidden reefs. They're shallow in shallow water that cause shipwreck. They feast with pride and they're at your church potluck and they feed themselves first. They are fruitless plants and waterless clouds. There's just no substance to them. There's nothing within them. Their wild lifestyle foams up their own shame and leaves behind this, this trail of collateral damage and the byproducts of sin. And these people are like wandering stars who cannot provide us with direction. And most of all, they cannot guide us in the way everlasting. And so we can easily recognize falsehood when we start to examine the motive, the substance, and the proof of God's work in a person's life. See, I just wonder for a second, do we perhaps, just think about this for a second, recognize some of these falsehoods in ourselves? 
Let's keep moving. I'll let you think about that. The final reason wrestling for the faith is so essential is found in verses 14 to 19. Finally, Jude shows us that contenders rely on God's justice. See, Jude appeals to the first book of Enoch to illustrate that God will judge the ungodly. He will judge the people stirring up division and leading people away from the truth. These grumblers, these malcontents, the loudmouth boasters, the ladder climbers, and the willful sinners. And Jesus and the apostles predicted these ungodly people in the last days. But I wonder, when we think about God's justice, what are we supposed to do about it? And this is a really good question for today, because let's address this question about God's justice. Let me begin to answer this question by taking you back to a story that Jude tells us. Jude shares this story from the Testament of Moses, which is in the Pseudepigrapha, and his original audience, the Messianic Jews, would really know it very well. And in this story, the archangel Michael is contending with the devil over Moses' body, and they are trying to figure out, you know, what he where he needs to go, and kind of what his eternal fate is. And the devil is condemning Moses for all of his mistakes, for all of his sins, because he was disobedient to God here, and because he murdered that Egyptian, and so he wouldn't enter God's promised land. And this is really interesting what the angel Michael does. He wouldn't participate in the devil's judgments against Moses. This is what he says. Instead, Michael humbly proclaims, the Lord rebuke you. See, Judas showing us in this story that even the angels do not presume to take God's justice into their own hands. He alone is the righteous judge, and judgment belongs to him only. And so these liars and these false teachers will answer to him on judgment day. And I wonder, you know, when we are faced with falsehoods that challenge our faith, how often and how quickly do we proceed to judge and attack false teachers by name? Who are we to decide when God's mercy runs out? Is that how we're supposed to wrestle for the faith in our lives? Is that how we're supposed to defend against falsehood? Maybe we should stop treating people like they are the problem, more than we already know they are. But I think Jude and many other apostles are a great example because they didn't focus on who the false teachers were. They focused on the issue itself and rectifying it, which is falsehood. And so maybe the problem is the problem. Falsehood and unbelief. You know, just a little while back, I took my kids to the hill behind our house uh, to go sledding with some dear neighbors and friends of mine. And these days, that's just a really good reprieve from all the isolation and from being housebound. And the kids were just having this grand old time, and we were just desperately yapping with each other, like you do uh, from a safe distance, of course, with other adults. You're like, adult time, yeah! Right? And eventually the topic of COVID in the church comes up, as it always does nowadays. And I remember finding myself sharing some strong feelings about some certain faith leaders and their teachings. And immediately after this uh, conversation, as I was walking home, the Holy Spirit just convicted me about my words. It's not that my beliefs about their teaching changed, but I wondered to myself, is this really how I contend for the faith? 
And so that's what drew me to the book of Jude. And so now I want to say that I just refuse to participate in the call-out and the cancel culture that is so popular these days. I think Jude can show us a better way to wrestle for our faith. And that's what I really want to focus on today. So we worked through all that text just to get here in verse 20. And Jude writes in verse 20, he says, But you, he's talking to us, the believers, the church. He says, But you, beloved, the loved ones by the Father, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, the imperative here that is central to wrestling for our faith is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And so to be clear, no, Jude is not saying that we need to earn God's love. Like Jude said in verse 1, we are God's beloved and we are kept for Christ Jesus. Instead, Jude warns us to not discredit our faith while we wrestle for it. And so at the heart of the issue, we are representatives of Jesus and his intent in the world. And while God cannot stop loving us, we can stop loving as he loves. So Jude is describing both sides of God's love now. And so on one side, God's love for us will not change. The Apostle Paul prays that we would know the sheer dimension and the magnitude of God's love for us. But you know, on the other side, the love of God compels us to live as servants of Christ. And so Jesus warns his followers to remain in his love by obeying what? His commands. And so in relational terms, God loves you, period. That's settled. If you reciprocate, that love is up to you. And when you're not loving, you're stepping outside of your relationship with him. You're not in the love of God. And so what does that mean for us as a body of believers? Well, the result is this, is if we are a church in love with God above all things, we'll be safe from falsehood. The, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said it best. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. For a warm-hearted company of Christians who love the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls are not likely to be overcome by mockers and sensualists. Love to God will be as a wall of fire around about them. In dull, decaying churches, air spread like ivy on the crumbling walls of an old abbey. But life, zeal, earnestness, warm-heartedness throw off these evils even as a red-hot iron plate evaporates the drops which fall upon it. Love God, and you will not love false doctrine. Keep the heart of the church right, and her head will not go far wrong. Let her abide in the love of Jesus, and she will abide in the truth. So if we're to be a church that loves God above all things, how can we do that? How can we be a church that loves God? Well, Jude shows us how we can stoke our affections for God really specifically. First, Jude instructs us to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. He tells us to circle back to the faith that we are contending for, for the, for the apostles' teachings. 
We need to return to our first love, the good news of our Lord and our Savior. And so if we're going to wrestle for the faith, it is crucial that we know the gospel message. Otherwise, how can we wrestle for something we don't know? More importantly, how can we wrestle for something we haven't even experienced for ourselves? We need to be personally built up. And in the spiritual vitality and the body of Christ, wrestling for the faith is not an ability to recite scripture and doctrine alone. It's a whole life response. Second Jude instructs us how to stoke our affections for God in praying in the Holy Spirit. And so Jude reminds us that the difference between us and the ungodly is the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that the Holy Spirit is alive in every believer. He's alive in you. But in another experience altogether, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we can pray in such a way that we can better wrestle for the faith. There's the great theologian John Calvin said that we are so naturally cold that we can't pray as we should without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And so why should we pray for, as we wrestle for our faith? Well, when we pray in the Spirit, we are convicted of our need and the needs of another. An ongoing conversation with the Holy Spirit can help us. Because without God, we just are nothing. We cannot contend well, wrestle well, and have mercy. Praying is just hard because we have a trouble depending on God. Another issue we have is waiting on God. And so Jude reminds us here in the next verses that ultimately only God's son, Jesus, will settle the matter when he comes in the second coming to prove that his word is true once and for all, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. And so finally Jude instructs us to wait on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is God's mercy that redeems all things and settles the score. And so when Christ returns, we'll know the full measure of God's mercy towards us. And that is our hope. And that is the hope for the world. So how can we show this mercy towards others? Well, Jude shows us that we all need the same mercy. But we need it in different forms. He continues to write and show us three modes of mercy. He writes, and have mercy on those who doubt, number one. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's number two. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's number three. See, here Jude is encouraging us to have patience and hope and caution when we're helping people who are struggling and doubting. Why? Because mercy is for everyone. There is mercy for the doubting. Every believer doubts, whether in a moment or in a season or for a lifetime. Doubt is a part of the process of faith. And so we need to allow this special thing to someone, the the right to change their minds. We need to have compassion on those who are doubting. There is mercy for the struggling. Nobody is a hopeless cause. Even if they have embraced lies and they're playing with fire, we can risk offering all love and no truth, or we can leave them in their sins that way, or we can offer all truth and no love, misrepresenting the gospel. But what Christ offers us is truth and love. Finally, there is mercy with fear. And we should be careful when showing mercy to those playing with fire. Because if we get close to fire, you know, I might get burnt. 
If I, if I get too close to sin, it might rub off on me. This isn't the person's fault. But friends, don't mess around with people's sin because we are not beyond temptation. We all need the same mercy. You can only have mercy on a sinner by the strength of the Lord. And so I want to tell you today, this is the big idea as you go. You cannot wrestle for the faith without mercy. Have mercy. See, there should be no winners and losers in the wrestle for our faith. In this wrestling match, both opponents need God's mercy. You wrestle with those stuck in unbelief, not to destroy them, but to save them. People aren't the problem. See, the problem today is that there's a strange allure to falsehood in today's culture. Let me explain what I mean. For example, uh, Marvel Studios just released probably one of their most unique series yet. It's called WandaVision. Some of you might know it from Disney Plus if you're a subscriber. And, you know, this ultra-heroic series concerns itself with a superhero couple, Wanda and Vision. Hence the name, WandaVision. And Wanda, otherwise known as the Scarlet Witch, she has these magical powers. And her brilliant boo, Vision, is a quirky cyborg. He's half human, half machine. And WandaVision's plot focuses on this deception that Wanda designs. Simply put, Wanda has created an alternate reality for her and Vision to live in. A false reality that is almost sitcom perfection. Almost. And so even though it is tempting for them to live in a lie, Vision starts to see the cracks in Wanda's facade. And so the question the audience starts to ask is, why did Wanda do this? Why has she spun this web of lies? Maybe Wanda has a good reason for her lies. Maybe the real world is just too painful to live in. But maybe we would just do the same thing. You see, today it's more and more acceptable to define your own truth. It's no longer about the reality that you discover. It's the one that you create. And so I fear that this kind of thinking, this falsehood, could creep into the church. You see, uh, many Christians avoid this for various reasons. Um, maybe it's because they don't want to face falsehoods because it is scary. The controversy is very scary. But, you know, it's necessary if we're going to keep people from walking away from the faith. We need to wrestle with this. The second reason may be because we don't want to look for falsehoods because we're afraid that what we'll, what we'll find. We might find falsehood in ourselves. And so to this, Jude encourages us to still wrestle for the truth. The good news is that the truth is mercy for others and for ourselves. And so when we wrestle for the faith, we're having mercy on others. Without the truth, you know, lies will always lead us back to doubt and loss, but the truth always leads us back to Jesus. Without the truth, we can't experience the power of the gospel. We, you just can't do that. Christ said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then the truth will set you free. So this is the good news for you today. This is the gospel for you. While you are wrestling for the faith, Jesus is wrestling for you. He is contending for you. And for that, he is worthy of our love and affection, our worship and our praise. And so Jude, in this beautiful doxology, he writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful?
Remember this, people. You cannot wrestle for the faith without mercy. This is important for today's church. See, that's the way of Jesus. We're not kept for him because we contended for the faith. We are kept by the power of our merciful Lord and Savior. He is our hope. And if we misunderstand him, we misrepresent him. See, this is what the book of Jude is all about. Learning how to contend for our faith. And so Jude draws these pictures of false teachers and apostates and falsehoods. And in the process, he illustrates a life rooted in the gospel and what it does for us. One that is self-controlled, long-suffering, generous, and merciful. He blessed them, remember? May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Have mercy. And today, as we transition to a responsive prayer time, I just want to invite you to take this matter to God. And so just with every eye closed, whether you're at home here in the room or downstairs in Simpson Hall, I just want you to let God invite him to speak to you now. Maybe you'll ask him, which of Jude's warnings is just for me? Maybe you need to ask God to tell you, is there an area in my life that I need to wrestle for my faith? Maybe you tell yourself, hey, it's not my problem. Don't get involved. This is a really important one. Maybe ask God, is there a lie in my life that I am believing? Falsehood. Maybe you tell yourself, you don't have a problem. You can stop whenever you want. People don't care about you and what you do. Are you believing that lie today? Let God speak to you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been tapping on your shoulder and telling you there's this person in your life who needs your mercy. What should that look like today? Wait on God for another moment so he can speak into our lives.
Lord, we just pray today that you would have mercy on us sinners. Forgive us just for all the times that we have avoided confrontation and truth-telling. Forgive us for our doubts and help our unbelief. And all the times we've misrepresented you, we just ask that you forgive us when we've denied mercy to others. And we just so often can take it upon ourselves to unfairly judge doubters and those who are struggling with sin and write them off. So Lord, we just ask that you'd have mercy on them the same way you've had mercy on us. So renew our love. We renew our love for you today, our devotion to you today. Jesus, use us once again, we pray. And we love you. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.